This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hello, good evening, and welcome to another episode of Tabletop Genesis. It's evening somewhere, if you're listening to this, right? And, um... I am Mike Lord. I'm your host for today, and we are here to talk about Peter Gabriel 3. So let's introduce ourselves. Good morning, everyone. This is Ellie. Uh, good evening, everyone. This is Simon. Good afternoon. This is Stacy Godfrey. And early good morning. This is Tom Roche. Excellent. So we're all in different time zones talking about this album. And we would like to talk about, as I said, Peter Gabriel 3 today. Peter Gabriel's, surprisingly enough, third album, often called Melt because of the cover artwork. And Simon, let's talk about what Wikipedia has to say about this album. Okay, well, uh, Wikipedia has this to say. Uh, and I must actually stress that um, this is not the first time that we've recorded. Yes. <laughs> we had some technical difficulties the last time when we were recording our Invisible Touch uh, episode. And this, our first stab, even first and a half stab at Peter Gabriel 3, disappeared into the ether. <laughs> and we were all very sad about that. But we had a group hug and we got over it. And so we're now revisiting this album today. Yeah, so uh, the reason why I was making mention of that is that you might just please forgive any level of frustration that might come out. Um, so anyway, yes. Peter Gabriel is the third fucking album by English rock musicians Peter Gabriel. Uh, sorry, I'll do that again. Peter Gabriel is the third album by English rock musician Peter Gabriel released in May of 1980. The album has been acclaimed as Gabriel's artistic breakthrough as a solo artist and for establishing him as one of rock's most ambitious innovative musicians. Gabriel also explored more overtly political material with two of his most famous singles, the anti-war song Games Without Frontiers, which became a number four hit and remains his joint highest charting single in the UK. Okay. I didn't know that. Uh, and the anti-apartheid protest song Biko, which remembered the murdered activist Stephen Biko. The album was remastered along with most of Gabriel's catalogue in 2002. Now, if I remember, this is not actually on the um, on the wiki uh, page at the moment, but they have just recently re-released all four of the albums on a very high-grade 180-gram wow. vinyl yes. and edition. I think it half-speed mastered so that each album is actually two LPs, so that it's probably a song or two on each side of the LPs. So I have not purchased these at this point because I'm not that much of a vinyl collector. But I think for the people who like the vinyl, this is certainly something that, and if you like Peter Gabriel, it'd be a no-brainer to pick this up, yeah. I would think. Yeah, I agree. So it's interesting about this album. This came out in mid-1980. I think you said May 1980. This was the same year that Duke came out. Uh, Steve Hackett put out Defector. This was a good year to be a Genesis fan, I would imagine. Oh, so, yeah, or, or the extended Genesis family fan, too, with Genesis itself putting out good album, with Gabriel and Hackett putting out good albums, with even just having the two previous solo albums from Mike and Tony out the previous year. Didn't know that this was on the horizon, but Face Value was coming out the following year. 
this was an interesting time. A fecund period, you could say. Exactly. With that, we will jump into our track-by-track discussion of the album with Intruder. Intruder, this is, again, you know, a fantastic opener of this album. It just kind of sets a mood, sets a scary, creepy mood right off the bat. Yeah, and and actually, I think unwittingly, it also, this is one of the tracks which kind of sets the template for a sound of the 80s. Yes. Which is that drum sound. Yeah, that drum sound, you know, which Phil played on, you know, he supposedly played for, you know, an extended period of time, Peter said, just keep going with this. This is great. We'll record this and write something around it. And, you know, it's this strip back feel. It gives just this air of menace about it. And in performance, it came out that same way, where even though it probably didn't have the same kind of claustrophobic feel of this, of the album version, it had this, this, you know, evil sound to it that just permeated everything. It was like, it starts off with like that drum beat, the fill drum beat. And I think you get the first inkling that something is missed when it has that scratching yes. sound, which, <laughs> what was that mean? Yeah, yeah I think it's a pick going down. A, it's supposed to sound like a, a one of those glass cutters. Sure, yeah. But I think they actually used a pick going down either one of uh, um, Tony Levin's bass I mean, Tony Levin often seems to get an awful lot of effects. <laughs> right, yeah. You know? Yeah, I could see that knowing those type of sounds, you know, if you mic up something really close to that and just have this, you know, do some mixing to it or some different EQ, that'd be, you can really creepify these sounds pretty well. And I think that's a great word to sum it up. This really is a creepy song, yeah. isn't it? Oh, definitely. Even doing it orchestrally, uh, Ellie and I saw him on... Uh, at the show at Hammersmith where he, yeah, and actually we saw him in a couple places, but I was thinking of the Hammersmith show specifically that was for the DVD where, you know, even orchestrally, this doesn't sound right. <laughs> and I mean that in a good way. Well, I think orchestrally, I think they just added a lot of like 
dissonance to the notes yes. like just like just play like you know the wrong notes or something yeah, right. where like you got this unsettling feeling yeah. inside you which the whole song is supposed to you know bring about yeah. and in placid gabriel performance the first night that we were there he comes out he starts doing this song gets about a line into it and says oh i fucked up <laughs> came in at the wrong time let's start that again <laughs> and you know it's, it's the crowd laughs about it it's fun and everything but it's it's that classic gabriel thing of what are the words to my song again yeah. oh yes <laughs> i came in a beat too late and we're filming this so let's do it right <laughs> well you can't blame him really oh exactly yeah it was, it was not one of those bad things it was just it was so it was so gabriel <laughs> yes, that it was just yeah. like all right this works so spontaneous yeah, yeah it's like that it's like again, you know? right. with phil playing drums on this i always felt that phil kind of took away this whole feeling of the creepy intruder and mm. used it on his second album because it i always feel like the two songs are kind of tied together with phil's through these walls oh yes. yeah because that has yeah. kind of the same creepy like i'm listening i have the glass against the wall right. like that really kind of offsetting feeling right. that through the walls has and then i won't go into too much of Phil's album, but like then right. it goes into like a, a fine chorus. Oh, sure. But the, but the verses are very kind of reminiscent of Intruder, right. like that creepy feeling. But that shows the difference too between Peter and Phil is that you know Peter's doing this kind of esoteric, kind of sideways glance at this, and Phil does this song that if you don't necessarily think about it, you're just like, oh, through these walls, I can feel you and it's like oh that's so romantic and you go oh no it's it's really not yeah. <laughs> it's that every breath you take idea to it so, so it shows water. that yeah. they can do similar things phil makes it a bit more palatable to people yeah, I think at times. yeah it shows that being a lead singer in genesis makes you creepy yeah. <laughs> indeed but going back to that drum sound i think mm -hmm. um the that um, Hugh Padgham, mm -hmm. Peter Gabriel, and Phil Collins all lay claim yes. to to sort of like inventing that sound, sure. that sort of like that that gated sound that right. basically would would come to define the sort of like eighties right. drum yeah. beats. I think Phil says that he played it, so he's partially at least responsible for it. Peter and Hugh Padgham that they were in the control booth and heard it and said, "Oh, let's keep that setting." Or how was this done? And, you know, between the two of them, you know, again, not being there, it's hard to say. But I think that, yeah, they they all three of them can claim equal kind of co-fathership of this. It, it is a, a I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it probably was a joint a joint effort. But it just goes to show exactly how chance can yes. lay uh, claim to it as well. Because I think it was, um, there was a technical reason why. I think what was happening is that they... They had what's known as a talkback mic, which is a little mm -hmm. microphone that connects the the uh, the actual studio mm -hmm. with the musician, and on it it has an automatic what's known as a gate, which is an automatic volume thing. So when it senses a a, a sound, right. it turns the volume up, right. and when there's no sound, it turns it down. But being a gate, it shuts it off very quickly, so you right. get that right and it cuts stop. Off the, the, the... The follow through of these yeah, things. Yeah, which was, you know, yeah. sorry to use a pun, the genesis of that sound. <laughs> oh, very witty. <laughs> now, this is one of your favorite albums, or perhaps the favorite It's album My Invisible Touch, in the same know. way that you guys were sort of like very, very much, or certain numbers, members of this, <laughs> of this uh, esteemed uh, crew are, uh, are into Invisible Touch. This was the very first yeah. album I bought with my own money as a, as a, as a, as a, a young little munchkin. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a strange thing because um, 
I always found this to be an accessible album, a very you know inviting album. It brought me in, and it mm-hmm. was. I feel very lucky that I was was you know I found my gateway into the Genesis universe was through this album. Right. I think it's great that this album kind of for listeners was probably like, this is strange. I want to hear more. It but wasn't, this is strange, ooh, keep it at an arm's distance. It was, you know, give me more of this. Well, the reason why I make mention of, of that, and the reason, I, and I, I totally agree, is mm-hmm. it, it, I genuinely do believe it, it does make people want to listen right. uh, and draw them in. But this was the album that got him dropped from Atlantic, exactly. wasn't it? Yes, and uh, I know that Amit uh, Ertegan, in the head of Atlantic Records, says was one of the biggest mistakes that the record company made <coughs> because they didn't know what was coming. And I think it sounded like from, it might have even been in chapter and verse that he has a kind of a two-page spread in there talking about this. And it, was, it sounded like it was a lower-level person kind of saying, oh, this will never sell. And they got rid of it and said, and they dropped him. And so I think that this actually came out in the U.S. on Mercury first. Yeah, I believe so. And then right. Charisma picked it up, right? Uh, Geffen picked Geffen. it up after okay. that. So. And then they got rid of the guy who passed on it. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. sure they did. You know? He was the same guy that said uh, uh, about the Beatles' old guitar bands are on the way out. Exactly. You know? And it's so easy in retrospect. to like I can understand why a record company person might listen to this album and go, Ooh. Where's the single? You well, know, I guess, yeah, this? they're there but, to make sales, aren't right. they? Right, but it's at the, you think of that era of music, there was this way, the new wave coming out, kind of the post-punk music, Talking Heads, some of these other bands that were doing a bit more experimental rock that was being fairly mainstream. And, you know, why somebody couldn't see this album being a part of that, I, I'm very surprised by. So, I will say I will call back to Trespass, where I said that in, was it White Mountain with the whistling? Mm -hmm. Where this has the whistling near the end, where I'm like, you know, I always feel that these songs, again, very different in tone, but I feel like there's a connection there that, you know, I've made up in my head, if nothing else. No, I think it is a very interesting thing, because, yeah, I can't think of any other instance where both, you know, and Peter Gabriel was common to both tracks. Right, kind of the moody whistling. And actually, you know, Games Without Frontiers has a bit of whistling in it also, but this is kind of that whistling off in the distance that I was like, oh yeah, it sounds like White Mountain there with that kind of wandering off into the countryside in White Mountain, whereas this is some criminal wandering off with your things. So it's uh, it's it's an interesting balance there, I think. With that, we'll move on to No Self-Control. Stop. 
No self-control. What do people think? I think it's probably one of the most disturbing tracks he's ever written. Yeah, it's it has a very neurotic, tense feel to me. Not a, a different tenseness than Intruder. Well, I think it's got the the sort of like a, the id and the, the super ego or whatever, because he's got this one level of just kind of calmly telling himself what he wants to do. Like, got to get some food. I'm so hungry all the time. And then he has the, his mind screaming at him. I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to stop. And then it kind of goes back, like almost like a dual right. kind of vocal. Like it could have almost been like a duet. Like he sings the normal calm part and you have some screaming high vocal, screaming what his brain is saying. Yeah. So that's kind of, it's throughout, it kind of goes like that. And it's just this, it kind of builds and builds where he doesn't know how to stop. And there's no, so it, it's funny because I was listening to the Reading concert he did sure. before this album came out. Mm-hmm. And the original title was uh, Don't Know How to Stop. Right. Okay. And I guess it just evolved over time and finally changed it to no self-control. Right. Yeah. I think this feel of tension that this person is on the edge and they're going to fall apart at some point if things don't get in line for them. Interestingly enough, we'll, I mean, we'll get to it later in the album, but um, the single was backed with uh, Lead a Normal Life. Sure. And mm. when you think about it, that's a, a pretty challenging single to put out, really, when you think... Uh, it's, right. it's, I would not have, have chosen this song as a single, and I think it was an incredibly brave thing to do. I mean, it was, okay, maybe the climate was right, was right for it, yeah. you know, um, just as there is always a moment mm. for something to break through, but... It doesn't strike me as being a natural single. Yeah, it's very claustrophobic to me. It feels like I'm closed in somewhere listening to this. And and I really liked the song. It just gets that feel of, you know, I'm in the dark somewhere looking for those people who are are out to get me. The one, uh, as I was listening to it and kind of like making these thoughts about how it's the self-conscious and the conscious talking about it and how like the the words and the music really match kind of the feeling of the song. the, The one thing I would have liked kind of better to match it was if he would just keep on repeating I don't know how to stop throughout the end of the song and it just kind of fades out like the very end of it is I don't know how to stop and it stops so you know <laughs> so it's stopping it, 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 the song contradicts <laughs> itself at the so end I just would have been like it would have been cool if it just kind of like I don't know how to stop I don't know how to stop and it just keeps on repeating and going off so you even put that in the last groove of the single so it just kind of like goes, goes, and goes around goes. and around yeah but I think I, I get the sense Gabriel likes those kind of contradictions and those juxtapositions too so saying I don't know how to stop and then it immediately stops he yeah. you know like going back to intruder having that casual yeah. light-hearted whistle at the end when you know something just horrific yeah. has taken place i think he i think that was absolutely intentional i think it worked well just i don't know i kind of i like that as well in that kind of contrast yeah i like that perspective of him kind of you know reveling in the inconsistencies absolutely. with this yeah it's also this is the uh, the first track that features um, Kate Bush. She's on oh, I think right. two tracks this on this album. Games Without Frontiers. Yeah, well, she's the girl that's singing in the background. The no self control. Because let's face it, if Pete Gabriel had to do that, he'd have to get his balls in a vice. Right. Really. <laughs> yes, it might have happened in the earlier days, and he really would be oh oh. oh. <laughs> so. So yeah, this is a great piece. I mean, it's it's it's, it's uh, with the two voices and you know the tension and you know Kate Bush, uh, she adds more tension to you know the mm-hmm. already tense 
So was this, I mean, again, you were kind of not old enough at the time when this came out, but was this a popular album in general in Argentina amongst the Gabriel fans? Actually, yes. And we had, like a cassette with random songs recorded in it. And um, I think it was, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm just curious. Do you know the thing that I always find is most interesting about uh, Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush Mm -hmm. is how similar their career trajectories were for for that first half of the 80s mm-hmm. they first they they both produced um very difficult or should we say adventurous uh, creatively challenging mm-hmm. albums sure. during the early 80s uh, with with peter gabriel it was this it was peter gabriel three stroke melt right. for kate bush it was the dreaming and then they followed it up with an extremely in the later parts of, of the 80s and the mid 80s with an extremely commercial right. album you know with so and hounds of love hmm. yeah i mean they you wonder how conscious that was for both of them i yeah. think for peter it was fairly conscious seeing what he was writing at the time that people were saying this is you know a bit more open for you you know this is an opportunity that you might want to jump at you know that these these tracks are a bit more accessible and I don't know enough about Kate Bush to know whether that was the same for her also. Well, she's coming over in five minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll check in with her. Fantastic. So, well, with that, we will jump into kind of a pair of songs. Start and I Don't Remember. for me is that kind of late 70s early 80s we want saxophone and everything <laughs> so let's have a minute and a half minute and 50 second kind of sax intro which is not bad peter gabriel smooth jazz <laughs> i believe that is kenny g on on uh, saxophone. <laughs> he's holding one note throughout the entire time there. one of the things which i always think is that the 80s did for sax, you know. Right. I mean, effectively, it came out of the 80s and no one ever wanted to hear a saxophone right. in their life again, really. Yeah. Which is and, I wa- and I wonder if part of it is also that, you know, 
I never used a sax in Genesis, so I'm going to use things I didn't use before. Yeah. A different tone, different palette, sound palette. It certainly isn't a bad little minute and a half saxophone instrumental, but it's not something that's essential, I think, in any way. I wonder, though, if it was actually deliberately placed there because when they put No Self-Control and I Don't Remember back-to-back, they went, actually, those are too intense. <laughs> right. Is- have a little have a little breather between yeah. them. A little musical yes, so. sorbet. Right. Yeah. When he did on the live tour, Start was played before I Don't Remember. They were still kind of paired at that point uh, for the first tour, for the tour for this album. So they... They were considered kind of a joint thing for a while until they, until he probably didn't have a sax player with him anymore. Well, it's, it's interesting. It goes back to what Stacy was saying about the incro- incongruity or the, uh, the contradiction. Yeah, the yeah. contradiction. Yeah. The whole idea of sort of like setting something sweet against something, certainly lyrically, which is a very right. intense song, really. Right. And it's still recorded. I can't believe we're talking about Start this much, but uh, I, but it, and I, but I was just thinking it's still recorded in a very non-saxy way. It feels more distant. It feels a bit more processed. It's not kind of a Clarence Clemens smooth, like direct sax. It's not a Baker Street moment, no, is it? No, no, no. When I listen to this, I feel like I'm driving by in a car and I'm hearing it <laughs> off in, in the distance. Yeah, yeah, somebody else's car or something. It has this very distant quality to it. And yeah. I, lo- I like how it leads into um, I Don't Remember. Yeah. I think it works very well. I'm a big fan of transitions. They're very important yes. to me. Right. And this is a very good one. So. That, that's almost the best part of Start is yeah. the couple seconds as it has that sustained note yes. and goes right into the drum beat of, yeah. I don't remember. But Start always reminded me of one of those interlude instrumental pieces from The Lamb, oh. like as it would connect a couple of the, yeah, the sure. larger pieces, yeah. uh, just like a, mm-hmm. a, a, a gentler... Costume yeah, costume yeah. change. This is, the, this is the costume change song, where he could put on a different set of knee pads. When right. he was <laughs> now, whenever I think of Start, I'm going to think of Peter Gabriel somewhere standing off stage in his underpants going, <laughs> get me the hat. Right. I need that. Where's my leather jacket? <laughs> um, that it sounds like a song taken from another album, just there as Stacy was saying the transitions are really really important I think it's this is um, this has a, a, a meaning a reason to maybe distract the listener from all the tension <laughs> of the previous two songs right. two previous songs and um, so yeah it's a great transition I agree with that I think it comes back to uh, your I think you're spot on and it, I think it comes back to uh, how important an album is when it to be sequenced correctly yes there are times when you've got two equally great songs that just don't work next to one another right yeah i think that it's to me this album is stronger in the first half than the second half although the second half is very strong but there's something about this run of tracks on side a back in the album days that there's not a missed opportunity in any of these songs they all do great things and i don't remember is very much the same way Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> nice transition. Talking about transitions. So, so I think I I had the revelation when we when we did take one of this episode that I don't remember is about an interrogation. Yes, that's right. And it was one of those moments where I looked at the lyrics and I said, "How did I miss this for twenty five years?" that this is what this was about. I mean, maybe I thought it was just more about memory in general and somebody who, you know, was disconnected from their past, but it really is this, you know, a song about an interrogation. 
I think you were probably thrown off because every song up until this point was such a happy, feel-good song. I think so, right, yes. Sunshine and Butterflies, and all of a sudden, oh, an interrogation, why is he singing about this? This is one of the ones which I I genuinely believe is possibly one of the most accessible uh, tracks on the album. Um, and as, and I think that's it's one of the reasons why maybe you did overlook it because the, it's actually a very strong song both melodically and, and it's got this great power that these yeah. that all the way through this album you've got that absolutely wonderful sort of kick and snare yeah. uh, either Jerry Marotta's doing it or yeah. or, or Peter Gatt- or, or Phil, Phil Collins yeah. I, I think it's Phil I think on this track on isn't it track, yeah. and it just it just it just goes to show exactly how Phil Collins he just he has the groove, yeah, you know. He, he can really anything he's a part of. Exactly right, and I, he just um, he powers it along, especially with. Is this the first album that, that really fully featured uh, Tony Levin on the stick? Uh, for the stick, probably yes, but Levin played on his both previous two albums. So I was never quite sure yeah. when the stick made an entry into probably, because it's now, it might have been on number two also, but oh, yeah. I definitely on this, you know, the the kind of odd bass sound in this is the stick all the way so so yeah i think that you know tony levin's all over the actually actually no he's not all over this album because i think this might be the only track levin is on on the album but john giblin played bass a lot on this who was playing with phil and brand x at the time also so i think they as a rhythm section probably gelled pretty well uh this has the best chorus of probably any track on the album and it's again you're talking about it simon you said accessible before i think that this chorus had you know teenage girls singing it when he was doing it on the so tour again not knowing that he was that it was all about you know a uh, you're looking uh, at the teenage girls during the concert I know, I, I, gabriel was probably looking at the teenage girls during the concert while they were singing this so. it, it's the every breath you take thing isn't yeah, it yeah so yeah it doesn't sound like what it's about yeah. And I think that's a great skill in a songwriter to be able to kind of, you know, look at these kind of darker subjects in a sideways way that makes it much more palatable and accessible for people. I, I agree. And it's also uh, when we were talking about um, the introduction of musicians, because uh, there was a lot of outside musicians mm-hmm. that were being utilized on right. this on this album. I think this is the very first album that um, David Rhodes appeared on. Correct, yes, because he was working in a band called Random Hold that either opened for Gabriel before this or I think on the tour before this, and that's how he became aware of them and him specifically. And effectively now he's he, he's been effectively a, a part of the of the Gabriel band ever since then. Isn't yes, he has. He's, he's with him and Levin are, are the constants, th- constant through the years with uh with him and i think they're both you know great players for gabriel in their own right so i think they fit his music very well and maybe that's because they've just been playing with him for that long Mm -hmm. but but they've they're both the old men of the gabriel band now and i think it's interesting to note that that one of the things that runs through all of gabriel's material especially um uh, during this period is the no guitar solos (laughs) exactly no, no guitar sort of sort, and and it's it's a way that the song that sort of builds up to this um, crescendo, um, and then sort of like just kind of falls over. You got this. I don't remember. I don't remember. And you've got 
the, 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 the stick sort of like starting to go more more mad sort of like as, as Tony Levin's playing it and then it just builds up and builds up and then kind of just, just falls over at the very end of it and sort of it sort of peters out if you will but in a very musical way oh exactly and to give credit where credit is due from before, it's Jerry Murata on drums for oh, this track. Oh, Jerry. So, Jerry. yeah, Bill's not on here at all on this track Interesting enough, because I always found, uh, I always believed back in the day when I first bought this that it was Phil Collin playing on the entire album. I didn't realise exactly how much of this was Jerry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, Phil's on, it's just, uh, we'll, we'll clarify the credits on this album, but Phil is drums on the first two tracks, No Self-Control and Intruder. Uh, he plays the snare on snare drum on snapshot. on family snapshot, and then the kind of you know African sounding drums on um, on Beto, and okay. that's it. So I mean, unless they got the credits mixed up somewhere and he still props up somewhere, but you know that's everything oh. else drum wise on here. Unless Peter played something too, you know, random percussion is Murata. Yeah, well, as I said, he does an absolutely sterling job all the way through this album. Definitely. You know, it's, again, Phil Collins can do no wrong. And I will I will continue to say that. <laughs> one thing that Mike has said, it is probably one of the best choruses that we have. <laughs> I mean, it really sticks in your head to the point where I'm sure all of us, when someone, we hear someone say, oh, I don't remember. We continue <laughs> in our heads. I don't recall. I've got no memory. <laughs> and if you say it out loud, they look at you like you have three heads. Like, what? <laughs> it, it reminds me of when someone will say the word, oh, anyway, we always go on. She comes on a pale horse. <laughs> I'm sure I hear a train. And then you're just stuck with that song in your head all day. <laughs> you don't hear a thing they say after that. Right. You're, you're, you're just singing out. in your head. You're in a different world there. So. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we will move on now to Family Snapshot. The streets are lined with camera crews Everywhere he goes is news Today is different Today is not the same Today I'll make the action Take snapshot into the light Snapshot into the light I'm shooting into the light Four miles down, the cavalcade moves on Driving into the sun Right, you won't see me on the gun. Two miles to go, they're clearing the road, and the cheering has really begun. I've got my radio, I can hear what's going on. So, Simon, uh, you were just talking a bit about the history of this song, what it's based on. Yeah, well, I, mean, well, I say that I'm very knowledgeable. I am literally just reading off Wikipedia here. <laughs> don't, don't let people know your secrets. Oh, sorry. Yes, okay. <laughs> well, I, uh, apparently the uh, Family Snapshot is actually based upon um, a, uh, a thing called uh, An Assassin's Diary, which was published in 1973 and was written by a guy called Arthur Bremer. 
about the attempted assassination of George Wallace, who I believe was, who was he? He was a governor of Alabama in the 1960s, maybe into the 70s also, who ran for president. He was kind of a, he was, he was this governor who kind of drew the line against integration, racial integration. Later in life, he, he did kind of recant his positions, so he had some redemption there. But through the 60s and 70s, he was kind of a well-known anti-integrationist, racist. A pariah of it. If yes, you know. exactly. Yeah. He was the one that stood on the steps of the school and kind of blocked yes. the girl from the going US into was the he? school. Yeah. Oh, my God. He definitely was pressing the dickhead button. Yes, he was. So, so yeah, this track is, is one of these tracks that I, I really like, except for the ending. So for me, it's, it's one of these tracks that, you know... I think it's great. I think the build-up for it, you know, there's a lot of tension. It moves along. It moves like a... Uh, I will not swear on this thing, <laughs> but it moves like an MF. Uh, and, but then at the end, the lyrics kind of get into this mode of, oh, my parents are separating, and I'm, I'm sad because of that, and I'm going to become an assassin. And, I mean, I, I made a giant leap with that, but it's just, you know, being the child of divorce and everything like that, I'm like... You didn't be okay. <laughs> so well, it's one but, of those small things. Yeah, like, but I again, you know, this is something which I think will actually serve as a light motif for yeah. um, for the entire album. Uh, again, it comes back to what Stacy was saying about the the pairing of of, of contradictory parts of it, mm-hmm. and I think uh, he, you know, he definitely was sweet and sour is all over this album, sure. really. And um, I, I, I mean, I hear what you say, Mike, uh, sure. uh, but I, I genuinely think that the the actual end of that song is actually quite powerful because sure. it has what Stacy said which is that it's great big epic quality and then mm-hmm. it falls down to sort of like almost paper napkin size um, drama of, yeah. of a little child um, but I think one of the most interesting things about this track is is how Gabriel has reinterpreted it if you will certainly visually right. for, for the for the uh, the so tour when he did the anniversary yeah. tour because I, I think you guys were where there for the for the for the Soto where the first half of the show was was all the lights were were up right so yeah Tom and I were at the the Philly show when he came back and did the so anniversary tour and he he started the show um, with lights the house lights up and he actually had to come out and say this is supposed to be happening. Like the, the lights are out because I think he heard some complaints at earlier shows. At our show. At our show. Oh, in, in New York. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so the house lights were up. He did some demo song. I think I went to the loo then. And I came back when he started doing some, you know, his other material. And then he got the family snapshot. And then, you know, it was going along, house lights up. And it's funny, when house lights are up, people treat it like intermission. And there's like a lot of talking and you can hear, you can just hear everybody oh, kind of not paying attention, which is a shame, like it's family snapshot, I right? Um, and then all of a sudden when, you know, the it starts to get more dramatic and the drums kick in, the lights go out and the spotlights go out. And, t- yeah. and it was so dramatic, so amazing. And everybody shut the fuck up, man. Right? So like... <laughs> Yeah. He commanded that, and from that moment on, he absolutely commanded oh, yeah. that show, like yeah. that audience. And uh, yeah, it was so. 
he visually like he does in so many of his you know songs uh, you know live he absolutely visually represents everything is random everything is yeah, well yeah he's thought about yeah. how this yeah. is presented. absolutely yeah. so i thought it was a, a brilliant and very simple yeah. thing it was just lights you know <laughs> so yeah that was uh that was pretty dramatic and you know, i was really happy to see that on that tour because i've never heard this song live same before. here yeah. and, and at jones beach where ellie and i saw it that was one of the crowds where he didn't say this is on purpose for the lights and again rowdy new york outdoor crowd you got the lights off. yeah turn the lights off and, and i was just like this has got to be on purpose you know it's mm-hmm. it's and i and when the lights went down just kind of this for cut yes. for it it was this dramatic moment where i was like you know gabriel thinks about this stuff and knows that this is pr- how you present things and it's a dramatic moment in the song that worked and i hoped all those people who were kind of uh it was such an obvious artistic choice to cut it to cut the lights right where they did right. that i was like i hope they're all going oh i did it now <laughs> <laughs> i was just thinking yeah. he was going to start like a new song with yeah, it but exactly. in the middle of a song i thought yeah, that was very it was brilliant. very was very brilliant. smart well he it was very su- surprising when i saw him on like the 2002 tour on the up mm-hmm. tour in LA, he did Family Snapshot right. towards the end. And it was one of those songs where you knew the casual fan didn't know what the hell he was playing. Right. Yeah. But for the, it really made the hardcore fan kind of right. stand up in their seat and applaud because you knew like this track was going to take you from like quiet moments right. to like freight train, <laughs> then back to quiet moments. And so we were all like, and we were looking around at people like, come on, don't you know this is Family Snapshot? Right. Yeah. This is a great song. So. I think deep cuts, though, always tend to confuse the casual listener. Oh, they? sure. And that's and it's difficult for, for Gabriel because, especially in the U.S., like his first, besides Salisbury Hill, he really doesn't touch his first three albums that much oh, live. Wow. He did this these tours in 2006, 2007 in Europe where he really did dive into things like DIY and more about the Burgermeister and things like Mother that. Mother of Violence. Mother of Violence, exactly. Did he really? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, he did this kind of had the fans vote for tracks and they voted for a lot of these good more obscure tracks that he hadn't played for years and he played them and but again you know some of the feedback from those tours from the more casual fans were you know i didn't know a lot of the tracks so you're caught with with this so stacy stacy and tom you both getting back to family snapshot you both had different assassination interpretations of this song Right, I thought it was. I thought he was talking about the Kennedy assassination because he says, you know, the governor's car is not far behind. He's not the one I have in mind. Right. I thought it was Texas Governor Connolly who sure. was in the limousine with him, and Stacy thought it was something different. Yeah, I thought it was the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan by John Hinckley Jr. Because right. um, I don't know why. I think it was one of those things where I got into this album not in '80. It was probably in the mid '90s when sure. I discovered this album. And maybe I just learned about this in school or something. Right, yeah. And it was like the, I don't know, I just always, so now I always associate sure. this song with that story. Um, and this actually, this the story of John Hinckley Jr. is kind of um, been interpreted in plays and just mm-hmm. in movies and films. So it's part of the, it, like the Kennedy assassination, part of the American yeah culture here and so um you know maybe the song resonates a little bit more in a different way to the u.s listeners than maybe somewhere else in the world but had the reagan assassination happened 
before the song was written or after? No, because this uh, Raiden wasn't in office yet. He was elected in November of 80 and took office in 81. I would like to mention that I was not a very good history student. (laughs) (laughs) As you you just uh, learned. But there's, there's this idea also of applicability of different music and of different books and of different ideas out there. And so... You know, it's it's in some ways a sad thing that in the U.S. we can apply this to a number of different Absolutely. ideas. And, but it, and it, it makes the song more timeless because yeah. you can apply it to something that hasn't happened yet or right, happened exactly. in the past or so. or things that, you know, might not even have happened at all. But, yeah. you know, it's relatable. And, yeah, right. unfortunately, the song still can resonate today. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, with what's yeah. going it's funny on. because for me, not English not being my first language, I never paid attention to the words. And I always thought this is a beautiful song. I love mm-hmm. the melody and this and that, sure. the bass line. Right. And then someone day I was like, oh, let me read the lyrics of the whole album. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wait. And then you were sad for a month. I was intentionally <laughs> not paying attention to the lyrics. Right. No, Maybe I could understand, but I was <laughs> right, paying attention. Yeah. I was like, exactly. oh, wait. I will look at this song from a different perspective now. Sure. I suppose it just goes to show, though, that um, Peter Gabriel, I mean, he can do some very overt messages. Right. And then you can go completely the opposite way and, and you can find something like from the next album, like Family in the Fishing Net, which is an astonishingly obscure lyric. Yes. Um, and so it just goes to show that um, I think Gabriel was, was, was really... I mean, I think he's always been um, a person that's paid a lot of attention to the message in a song, right. knowing full well that not everyone will get it. Right. Well, I, I like I think when I saw Gabriel in 2003 or so, he played Shot the Monkey. And he says, this is a song about jealousy. And I'm like, it is? (laughs) I mean, I knew it wasn't just about shocking monkeys, but I wouldn't have guessed jealousy. All right, all of that gives me a different perspective on the song now. So I I definitely get that. And and I should say, you know, with my critique of of the lyrics at the end of this song, I still think this is a great song. It it might even be my favorite on the album. Uh, I just... For me, the turn of saying, you know, oh, your parents are, are being apart and you're not paying attention to you, it seems like kind of an easy thing to kind of poke your finger at. Uh, but at the same point, I like that he kind of, oh, there's my toy gun on the floor, that there's this kind of association with childhood play and later in life things like that. I'm like, yeah, I, I see that. I can see a connection there. So I think that there's, it's it's just my, it, it, Pokes at one of my personal buttons when when he oh, does yeah, that. Yeah. So, so it's just that for me. So. Well, yeah, and you see that with um, Games Out Frontiers, Gabriel. Like you know, he, he views a lot of uh, you know this the international politics mm-hmm. or even you know national politics is it's a game, right? They're, Through the eyes of, a, of yeah, children playing. Absolutely. So, well, so there are I think a couple different camps of what this song is about, and one camp is saying that. This actually happened. The assassination happened. Right. And then at the end of the song, he's talking about why it happened. Right. Of what happened. It's because he was a kid and his parents got divorced. <laughs> Another theory, which I listened to the song in a different kind of lens, is that it didn't happen. This is, he's a kid in the present time mm-hmm. and he's going through his parents divorcing and it's so horrible that he thinks in his head, you know, if you guys don't stop fighting, this is what I'm going to do. Sure, and he describes okay. in his head this whole assassination. At the end, he's like, 
here's my toy on the floor. You guys better stop it or, hmm. or you know, you don't know what I'm capable of, okay. which is which can still be pretty dark, yeah. even if it's not true. I was going to say uh, a slightly I was going to say a happier interpretation, but I don't know if that's the right word for that. So that at least it didn't happen. So child assassinations are no laughing matter, Mike. <laughs> Indeed, they're not. See something, say something. All right. Yes. <laughs> and don't be mean to your kids. You know, pay attention to them. On that note, shall we move on to another happy song and Through the Wire? Tom, you have your favorite lyric from this track. Is it the same? You want me to go first? Sure. Okay, my favorite lyric from this track, and it's actually my favorite line in the whole album, is bring out the devil, bring out the guns. Oh, yours is better. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is uh, just the way he says the words is watchmaker steadies his delicate hands. Oh, all right. I like that too, but mine is better. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But they're both no. in the same track. But didn't, I, you, didn't you think it was something else? Like when you first heard it, I thought. Um, I didn't really know what this song was about when I first heard it, and honestly, I didn't know what this whole album was about when I first heard it. Um, you know, I I knew the lyrics. The one thing I could say about this is that the consistently throughout this album, the, this is one of his best pairings of lyrics and music like the words go so well they're so right for the for the music um he absolutely sets a mood and a tone and an atmosphere um but for this song i just i I really liked uh yeah i just like the lyrics of this i i love the um the shouty vocals which uh he i think he he also had very shouty vocals and um i don't remember as well and uh you know, remember we, when we talked about the Genesis uh, album back a couple months ago, and that was when Phil really came out with his shouty vocal style. And like Peter kind of started off with this album. Um, I don't know if it was an 80s thing. I haven't really thought of it before, but I know that Peter and Phil both like in the 80s decided to just shout all of their lines. <laughs> it seems. <laughs> I wonder if it was talk. something with the PA system. Yeah, like the, the microphones without... weren't working yeah. and he just feel like he had to. And you know what? You think about how old they were with this point. They were in their early 30s. Like yeah. they're probably they were at the prime of their singing yeah. abilities and they sure. could belt out these right. kind of numbers night night. Yeah. absolutely um and do these kind of vocal performances so that's what i really love about this song i like his vocals here i just it's really gritty i don't know and i do i love that line bring out the devil bring out the guns it says a lot hmm. very succinctly <laughs> although technically now i'm reading the lyrics it says bring out the devil bring out the god what oh, <laughs> no. he's wrong he's wrong that's right that's a typo <laughs> 
Let me uh, let me call him up and, and right. see if he can fix we'll it on the him. on the uh, vinyl releases. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay. Well, I mean, just out of interest, because I genuinely have no idea what this song is about. What is actually supposed to be about then? I, you know, I was going to ask everybody the same question because to me, I always got this impression that it was kind of, you know, a way of looking at people at the distance, not literally about people in a prison camp looking out or people out looking in a prison camp or something, but just kind of seeing things through that prism of distance and hate. And, you know, you're looking at it through the wire. So, so for me, that was always the mental imagery, but I never thought this song was, was literally about something. And I could be totally wrong. Maybe it's like seeing things through like a a single lens and Mm -hmm. through you're hearing it through the wire. It's not the whole story. It's just a piece. It's a story that somebody wants you to hear. Because also and through the wire is kind of like down the radio line. Yeah, that's how I envisioned it. Yeah. So the TV in some ways, you know, the radio, a radio program, it'd be through military. I always thought military communications for some reason. I don't know. Maybe it harkens back to the. I don't remember kind of <laughs> sure. feel. Are you trying to say that you feel what you hate and you feel what you don't understand? Or I do. <laughs> well, that is from Duke from the same <laughs> year as this, so we're all tying it together. We do fear this. Mm. Is this the track that features, I can't remember, is, is this got Paul Weller on this yeah. track? Yes, yeah. I think he plays guitar yeah. on this, if I remember correctly. That's cool Reeves, I love this song. Well, isn't, yeah. that, isn't that why you bought the album, right? Because you, you knew Paul Weller. I think it just goes it just goes to show exactly how much economics has an awful <laughs> lot to say about it. Because I, I, when I bought this album, um, I was a young man with not a huge amount of money. And when I looked at who was on the album, it had Dave Gregory of XTC, yeah. Phil Collins was on it, who at the time I didn't realise, I didn't get the Genesis connection at that, that point. Um Paul Weller was on it as well, and, and I think another of a, a couple of other artists as well that piqued my interest from the new wave scene. Okay, right. I think and, he was recording in the, ne- in the studio next door, Paul Weller, and oh, heard right. music, and he said, "Oh, this sounds cool." Mm-hmm. And I think Peter invited him to play along, or oh, that's it was something cool. spontaneous. Like when you bought it, did you know Peter had, was in Genesis? Or uh, you just figured no, he was a solo no, no, artist. No, I, no idea. I had no real conception of 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 the individual members the of history, Genesis, yeah. you know, um, at that point. I knew that Genesis existed, but I didn't know who they were. Um, and I, you know, as I said, I I, I thank Gabriel for it, really, mm. because he was my gateway into Excellent. the world of Genesis. That's fantastic. So. It's funny because I think of this song as, we were talking about how side A is a lot stronger than side B. If I had, you know, if I could kind of arrange this album... This is one song where I wouldn't mind it ending on Family Snapshot because I think that's a good ending to a side. Okay. And Through the Wire could could have been a really strong B-side, but I see how they ended it on side one. They've kind of got like the sound effects, like a slam door, like it's it, it, mm-hmm. like that's the end of side one, and then it goes right into side two. So I can see why they included it. I think I would have been fine with it not included. But it just goes to show exactly how... Um, they were still at this point artists bands labels were thinking in terms of sides yeah we've spoken about this on a number of occasions and i think um for example sort of like it's a very different beast talking about um us for Mm -hmm. example the the, the, that that is not an album which you consider to have two sides but peter gabriel three and a lot of the albums from the sort of like the mid 80s Mm -hmm. back 
they they were se- segmented, I suppose, yes. is the best way to describe it. And yeah, it's a great way of yeah, as you say, it shuts the door on yeah. one side of the album. Yeah, you make music differently nowadays because you said CD works different than you know a cassette or. And even so now, yeah, you have to think. Okay, what set of songs yeah. I want in my side A or side one, and then what right. what set of songs I want in my side B or. Oh yeah, because I th- I think there was running uh, times, but like the, the vinyl quality was right. degraded if you had too much. Right, that's stuff why Duke always sounded a, a little tinny on on vinyl because it was about twenty five minutes of music on each side of that album, and it it. It compromised the sound quality to, Interesting, a, to an extent. Yeah. Excellent. We will move on now to Dames Without Frontiers. So good enough for government work. This is this is again, you know, one of these tracks that when you hear this story that the people at Atlanta didn't see any singles or any radio potential for any of these tracks, I'm surprised about this because while it's not a lyrically accessible song, it definitely gets in your head. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, we we all are sitting here bathed in the glow of 2020 hindsight, yes, exactly. but you know. It is, I agree with you. I mean, it was the single that made me a fan. Right. It was, that was the one where I went, I want to know right. more about this guy. Did you see the video for this? I did, yeah. Day? Okay. Yeah. I think the verse is he's walking past yeah. the bank of TV screens. Oh. And then at the dinner table, he's kind of like interrupting and looking at the guest faces, okay. which I think if I had seen it when this came out and I was nine years <laughs> old, I think it would have given me nightmares forever. And I would have yeah. sworn off anything Peter Gabriel. Right. So I'm glad I didn't see that video back Later in the day. Later on in life. Okay. Yeah, I think it, this was the first UK top 10, the, the song. As much as we denigrate the pop charts, mm-hmm. how much material of great artists that we encounter for the Ooh, first time yeah. as a single? Well, because that, it's, it's that accessibility thing. If you don't hear something, how are you going to know if you like it or not? And if something becomes popular, even though some of the, the long-term fans may poo-poo that, 
it gives more people an opportunity to hear the music. And yes, some people are going to hear that one track and go, I like that song or I like that album and never explore anything else. But for so many people, it does give that gateway to the rest of the career. Like, I've always been a completist. And, you know, when I, when I get into a band, I like getting everything that band has done, even when it sucks. <laughs> and, and sometimes it does. And that's painful, but it's like, well, you're seeing the entire spectrum of things here. So I think we'll get on to it uh, a little bit lyrically a little bit later. But there was one thing I, I always reminds me about this song is mm-hmm. the Gabriel performing it again um, on the Growing Up tour okay on the segways have you ever seen that that's uh it's not one of i think his greatest uh visual images (laughs) well i I think he was trying he was like throwing everything in the kitchen sink into like props for that show and the segway just it it didn't do it for me because like this is you know a a good song about like global relations and different countries like in in combat with each other and who's the best country and then he comes out on a Segway with his daughter. And I mean, Segways, I've ridden them. They're awesome to ride, but you cannot look cool riding them. I mean, the reason they gave Paul Blart Mall Cop a Segway, so he would look uncool. And you just can't ride a Segway and look cool. So. Maybe they were sponsoring the shows or the, the tour, so they yeah. had to. And it, I could imagine it would be one of those ideas that you would say, oh, this will be fun. And it was. It was fun, but it didn't tie in with the music at all. It's, it's much story. like the red wearing the red fox dress for the musical box. Talking about the lyrics of this song, um, when I first heard it, and I still think this when I hear the song, I think Kate Bush is singing She's So Funky, Yeah. <laughs> which which mentally works when you're thinking about the song. Yeah, and it was the 80s, yeah. and she everybody's funky, funky yeah. in the 80s. <laughs> you know, she is so funky, yeah. I, I always thought it was She's So Funky, Yeah. When, and the sad part is, I was actually taking French at the time, so I should have known it was... Yeah. I should have known better it was Just Sans Frontier. A French... A friend of mine thought it was she's so popular. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think that it's it's funny. Even when you learn the actual words, you can still associate it with those words you made up for yourself back in the day. There's a lot of songs that I still do that for. Well, so. here's something which again might not necessarily resonate with with many uh, American uh, fans of the band or, or fans of, of, of Peter Gabriel, but it, there's a, a, a sort of subtext of this which is. There was a, a set of popular games uh, all around Europe called It's a Knockout. Right. And it was also known as Je Sans Frontier, which is Games Without Frontiers in French. Yeah. And uh, and what it was, it was, you know, it was like silly Olympics. That's right. the best way. You know, everybody's running around in foam costumes getting batted off <laughs> slippery game, beams and stuff. Yeah. And, and one of the other interesting things is that there's a line in it that he sings, which is It's a Knockout, right, yeah. which was the title of the British version. Okay. So it's that was totally lost totally. on Americans, <laughs> but it's but again, it, once you, if you're a fan that gets into this stuff, it does add a different level to it that is is making a fairly direct commentary for Gabriel, you know, about you know these games being much like the political games that are played. That's so, precise. I think that's really spot on the money, right? right? Because it's, like with these names that he uses in the lyrics, you know. I think it's very difficult to use the name Adolf in a track nowadays mm-hmm. without thinking, oh, Hitler. Yes, you know, exactly. that's not a name you can just kind of casually throw into conversation. There aren't a lot of little Adolfs running around anywhere that, <laughs> exactly. that I can see in, in the English speaking world. Um, so I think that that's, 
you know, there's a commentary there just with the names that he chooses. And if I may uh, take it off on a slightly different uh, tact as well, this is one of the um, uh, few examples that you actually hear a drum machine. <laughs> okay. One of the earliest sort of like, you know, with the old, I think it was a Roland uh, CR-78, very okay. similar to the to the one that was being used on uh, Genesis, where oh. Genesis was using a lot of their yeah. uh, uh, drum machines as well, which starts the track off. Yeah. We also get the, at least in the U.S., the slightly edited lyrics of this track for the radio play, which uh, they're kissing baboons in the jungle instead of piss on the goons in the jungle. Ah, oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, I it's, thought it was always kissing baboons no, in the jungle. Yeah, it's, 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 it was, we piss on the goons in the jungle. That's yeah. So if you listen to it on, on the radio, again, if you're listening to the rock yeah. radio and they play this track, you generally hear the the edited lyrics of this. And I think maybe maybe on 16 Golden Grades, the best of, it might be the edited, the different lyrics on that version. I didn't also. know they edited I'm it. Not That's sure. interesting. For the US, and maybe in the in the UK, they're a bit more relaxed about these things. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, kissing then, baboons is, is right. commonplace here in the <laughs> yeah. US. So Much better than kissing on the goons. Yeah, yeah. So. everybody here accepted yeah. that as... Oh, well, here in the oh, lyrics... The first instance, it is we're kissing baboons. Okay. The second instance, it does say we piss on the goons. So I think yeah. in the Amer in the American radio version, they, they just probably use it. they kind of edit in the lyrics there. But it's funny. On I remember for a while growing up, like in the Pink Floyd song "Money," like in my early teens, in the early to mid '80s, hearing that on the radio, you'd hear the bullshit word. And then sometime in the late '80s, early '90s, I feel like they started editing that. I, I think like, they edited. I think that started after the Janet Jackson incident. Oh, really? That's when I think you first heard that being edited. You heard uh, on the Who. Yeah. Who the, who the fuck are you? are you? Like that. Like. Thanks, I think Janet it's the Jackson. tip of gore moment, isn't it? You know that whole yeah, business yeah, of uh, yeah. of you know. And sometimes maybe it's the time of day that you hear it in. So, but yeah, I mean, you do hear these in some radio stations. They might play the swearing version. Some might play the other one. So. You know, it's it's interesting. Again, it's funny just, though how some actually do miss miss sort of like slip through the net. But I suppose oh, sure. if you just don't draw attention to it, right? Sometimes you can get away. Well, especially with it. you know, there's some English slang that you know won't necessarily kind of raise the eyebrows of people in the U.S. But if it comes through, you're like, oh, okay, there you go. And we had a, a movie in our theaters, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. That right. that didn't raise an eyebrow in this country at all. Right. Yeah. Really? Well, yeah. see, that, that's you know, to to an Englishman, that is, you know, <laughs> that, that that's uh, that's that's fighting talk. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, not one of us.
is all of our Peter Gabriel mating call that we're doing that starts off this track. Um, Can I just say, uh, we, we, we discussed this the, when the, we did the first abortive attempt at this, is that yes. you can always tell the difference between uh, the Peter Gabriel uh, uh, inflection and the Phil Collins exactly. inflection. That the fact that you can, Peter Gabriel always goes, huh? And, Gay, and Collins always goes, ow. <laughs> <laughs> and when you start listening for it that way, you hear it all the time. <laughs> yeah, so, and that's, again, you know, the, they're different lyrical fills that they use so uh very cool this is one of these great tracks that again is a classic of the era i'm totally with you on this i it was it was certainly my favorite when i first bought it and uh, it remains a strong favorite of mine now just because how it drives along i've never heard really a better kick sound Mm -hmm. a kick drum sound than, than you get with that was that boom 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 along with that great little low bass synth that he's using i don't know who did but i think this again this is jerry marotta playing his little heart out on this oh yeah and and i think it's it's again that song about you know the the level of paranoia group thing you know he gabriel is very good about at this time when he was writing these lyrics about feeling like the outsider looking in because and I, I guess he was. At yeah, this point, sure. I mean, he had he was having his level of success with his solo career, but nothing extraordinary, not blowing up in any way. He was playing decent sized theaters and was doing well, but hadn't maybe besides Salisbury Hill had anything substantial playing on the radio. And so, I suppose at this point in his in his career, Genesis were doing uh, commercially a lot better. than Yes, he was. Genesis was on the upswing and had been since he left, and, and was on that upswing before he left too. But that's he was he was even at this point he was doing his career and doing fine but he and steve hackett were playing about the same size places you know doing the same kind of circuit touring um gabriel maybe slightly bigger but not that much and they each had their fan bases you know and genesis was playing arenas at this point and you know solo i mean solo careers tend to draw less of a crowd than the band they come from Unless they get a big hit at some point. And Gabriel hadn't had that yet. This album was that first step really on that road. <laughs> Again, with 2020 hindsight, we can see that. Right. I think this has also got um, Dave Gregory of XTC playing yes. guitar on it. Yeah, in, in <laughs> it does. The, so. it's, it's got the best uh, lyrics on the album okay. by far. Uh, it's just from the opening, it's only water and a stranger's tear. That's one of my favorite lyrics on the whole album because just it, it speaks to that whole thing of empathy like if you can't put yourself in another person's shoes and what they're going through yeah they might be crying but it's only water it, like it it has no effect on you and then the other lyric which i love is uh how can we be in if there's no outside so what you've got to do is you've got to make these people seem as the outsiders because if if everyone is equal you can't be above everyone else which i think speaks to everyone on every level whether you're an adult whether you're a high school kid so i think it really resonates with on so many levels i love this that it's like you may look like we do talk like talk like we do but you know how it is it's very casual in that throwaway of you aren't one of us you are on the outside i think it speaks to that that sense of and it was very prevalent um, especially in uk around about the time of the 80s of that tribalism in music where Mm -hmm. where you had to be when I was growing up, uh, you almost had to like one style of music and one style of music. Oh, so I always remember a great, 
a great exchange by two guys in a changing room after sports session and I just overheard them and one says very seriously to the other so so who are you then and this guy said I'm an ant man like referring, <laughs> referring to ant, ant man the ants and, stuff. and I, that really kind of just sums it up I think I think that is my favorite Simon changing room so- story <laughs> yeah. he's got dozens but that's, exactly. that's the best that, that's the top one yeah. the ant man one tell that one again dad <laughs> uh, but I think that you know you see this even in you know the progressive music boards where it's like is this prod is this not is this that is this the other thing and I like the and again I know what I like and I and I it's it's very difficult to it's very easy to start splitting things into categories and you know this is the song that that does the best job of any song that talks about this in showing just how silly that is I think it's that whole business of a group of people gathering together in smaller groups to make themselves feel stronger or at least validated I suppose it's maybe not as prevalent now because we live in the internet age and the internet someone somewhere will be into you know 18th century gothabilly or something (laughs) Um, but it it certainly seems to be nowadays that there's a much more level playing field out there right because you you can find those people and you know you at that time when this was out and 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 simon was saying in the the music climate it's particularly in the uk i think in the us we were a bit more i don't know we didn't associate with one i always feel again from reading and hearing what people talk about that they got really into the punk scene and right. if you, and for at least in the music bags, if you weren't right, if you weren't right about punk or playing punk music, you were shit. But was that the was that was happening? No, here? that's over in the UK. Yeah, but I, I think, think here it was here, different. Not not as much, but I think that probably because the country is so much bigger. Absolutely. But you would still have, I think, you know, the, the metaphor, the mods and the rockers in the U.S. Except it was the hair metal people versus the prodders versus the people who love the eagles versus that right and there was still probably some crossover there but it i think especially as it got into the 80s there was probably less of the crossover happening you like top 40 oh you really don't like this other stuff right so i mean there were so many things happening yeah. at, at, at this time in terms of music you know the, the style was changing yeah. technology was changing the channels of which music was distributed right. were, were changing was huge so uh you know there's a lot of things happening here so i you know i can you know i can i can i feel peter on this song mm-hmm. and i can see he's at a, a point where he's been doing this challenging complex yes. crossing genres and 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 styles for years now yeah. and now he's getting called out on it <laughs> right and maybe you know not so much um that you know we could see but perhaps yeah. through you know his peers in the music industry yeah. or the label and he's reacting to it. i mean yeah. that's how i always interpreted this yeah. song like he's just like let me do yeah. what I do, what I've always done, right. and let me honestly put out the music I want to put out. Yeah. Um, but I have to admit, with this song, I always get it mixed up with I don't remember. Sure. I don't know. I, I think <laughs> I'm thinking about it now, like why I always mix these two up. I don't know if it's like the chorus is very, like it has that kind of marching yeah. beat to it. I, I always mix these up. No, so no, no, I no. hope I'm talking about the right song right I think now. You are. Okay, good. Can I also (laughs) make mention of this is the first album, and we haven't said anything about this right now. We've spoken a little bit about the iconic drum sound. But, of course, one of the other uh, elements which is... um, which is very much absent from this album is was deliberate, which is the lack of cymbals as well. This was the album where Peter Gabriel said, I want to completely change it, or at least push the boundaries of what was possible. 
it definitely opens up the sound more because those cymbals take up a lot of the high frequencies. And by taking them out, you it's funny, I wonder how many people, if it wasn't pointed out to them, would notice that. That's true. Actually. Or if it just sounds like kind of a, a more middle-range album because the cymbals aren't there doing all this, all the higher frequencies. But it really is, in rock, it was a very different radical change for things. Uh, you know, it, at, at the level that Gabriel was putting out albums, maybe in more avant-garde things, you can say that, oh yeah, that was done years ago. But, you know, at, at Gabriel's level, that was something new for, you know, that that period. And this song really does highlight that lack of symbols, just simply for that end section where Jerry Marotta basically, basically just goes mad um, on, on, the, on, the, on the, uh, the drums and sort of like tends to use just about every single... Tom in his arsenal um, to to generate a, an incredibly melodic Tom Tom sort of like top line if you oh, will yeah. while he while they're just chanting you're not one of us. I think there's probably a doctoral dissertation that could be written about Gabriel's music making the change from Jerry Murata being the drummer to Manu Kache being the drummer. Mm-hmm. If in that so time frame you know where Jerry plays a bit on a couple things and Manu Kache plays on some other things. And it's just how that changed his music. And maybe it had to happen at that point, uh, but it's it's an interesting, you know, real intentional change there that just changing, I don't want to say just changing the drummer, but changing the drummer really changes the vocabulary of the music. When you, when we talk about how there were no symbols throughout the album, I think that's like a consistent theme. Every song, it was like, here's something that is going to tie all the songs together. They do not have symbols. Right. Which I think also tied into how this was, in my eyes, the first album where it was a consistent... Like Gabriel had found his sound with this album. In the first two albums, there was a lot of experimentation. The first album, you had, you know, weird Morbun the Burgermeister. You had Barbershop Quartet with Excuse Me. You had Down Adult Vita, which was the bombastic. Disco, disco. disco. And then in the second album, you still had, like, One Day World, Wonderful Day and a One Way World. It's It's like all the songs were kind of, like, touching on different kinds of genres yeah, of music sure. and this album kind of like all right now he's got it this right. is the feel he's going for right. and he started with this album and then it he expanded upon it with the fourth album yeah. so it was, it was like this first like okay now i know what i'm doing this is the music that i want to put out yeah right. it's so you know it's very well arranged very cohesive like it's a single thought almost i think right. it's not a concept album right but if 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 you could have a concept album without a concept, <laughs> this would be it. <laughs> it's, it's a mood album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, from start to finish, it's a complete listening experience. You, right. you know, you really do have to listen to the whole album to get it. I guess. I, I think that that comes down to something which which not many people fully appreciate about Gabriel, but he tries very hard to make every single one of his albums an immersive experience. Yes. It's a statement. You know, you know he's drawing you into a world that, that that every single album is a discrete world unto itself. Sure. And the, just being ahead of his time, the original working title of "Not One of Us" was "Mean Girls," oh, which I thought was very cool. Really? Yeah. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I was open to learning things. But if you watch "Mean Girls," yeah. that's what this song is about. Yeah. Right, there you go. They should have used this over the credits. They right? should have. There's a bit of the, the lyrics that says, All shades of opinion, feed an open mind, but your values are twisted. Let us help you unwind. It does make a lot of sense, really, when, you, as you say, sort of like he, 
I won't say that he was railing against people that that wanted to to segment, but I think that there there is something to be said that it's very dangerous to lose that sense of adventure when it comes to diversity. Mm-hmm. When you only listen to one form of music, when right. you only subscribe to one worldview, when you only believe in one political way forward, or you are discounting a huge amount of what's possible in the world and it it speaks to that element of uh, of shying away just to feel a bit more secure in your world which let's face it the world isn't a secure place <laughs> right and you have to figure out how to deal with that right. exactly and right. maybe that's what maybe that is the concept of this album now you know right. if the, dealing with that in some ways so well we'll move on now to lead a normal life to me is always it's kind of like start it's a little vignette that allows a, a breathing space in the album i agree i mean and it's um uh, as i said it was back that was the b-side of uh, no self-control <laughs> right which is um it's, it's an interesting track really because it's again it's it's the marimbas which is again right. another feature of this album there's a lot of sort of like um uh, marimba work that sort of like mm-hmm. sits either sort of like in the outside, like Biko, it's on. Yeah. Um, uh, what's Intruder. it? It's got Intruder. It's Game also on. Going, yeah. So it they they sort of it's there around about. It's obviously sort of was a. Um, it must have been in the studio a lot. Right. You know, oh, I will use that. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. The, well, there was a story about uh, Lead a Normal Life. He played it live. Right. He played it live once in Normal, Illinois. <laughs> uh, because you kind of have to, I guess, when, you, when you're there. Um, and I hope the normal people appreciated that. So it, it, it's to me, it's the word normal is always kind of a an interesting, not a loaded word, but... One of my college roommates always had a nice phrase that was, why be normal when normal is boring? And, you know, I think that that's, you know, the definite, what exactly is a normal life? Exactly. You know, you could say, oh, you know, I have 2.5 kids. I got two cars in the driveway. I work and I come home and that's my normal life. But then I, you know, get tied up to the bed and do all this stuff later on. Like, you know, your little slices of normality yeah. is doesn't necessarily mean that it's a normal life. For everybody. Right. Oh, I think it's it was pretty normal. I, yeah. I was, I, I was talking about the job and going to work thing as being abnormal. So. We must get those um, uh, those ropes off the back yes. of the bed That's this right. time. I, and, I didn't want to say anything. Yeah. But no, uh, what the, other, the other side of this is that um, uh, one of the things which uh, extraordinary people and... and 
extraordinary endeavours require mm -hmm. is the context of normal sure. to be extraordinary. Right. For every single sort of, you know, I always remember there's a, there's a line in, in the film The Incredibles where the, uh, the evil genius at the end says, when everybody has superpowers, no one will have superpowers. Exactly. Well, that kind of harkens back to how can we be in if there is no outside? Like you have to establish yourself as superior and normal in order to do that, you have to look at other people as not normal. And in this song, uh, what I love about it is it's, it's a simple song. Mm -hmm. I mean, the lyrics, obviously, it's about somebody who's kind of like in an institution. And mm -hmm. obviously, they don't, they don't want to give them spoons. They don't give them knives. Mm -hmm. And there's like this kind of yell, this scream, mm -hmm. which kind of builds up towards like the end, mm -hmm. which you... You know, like this is what maybe this might be going in the mind, going on in the mind of the guy who's in this institution. But it's just like very subtle scream, which kind of builds and builds, and then maybe I think it dies down a little bit. But it's sure. just that like that moment of you, your insight to this guy's mind who's in this institution. It's it's kind of deep for a small song. I wonder whether or not that was the reason why they paired it with uh, I don't uh, no self control on the single. Sure, it could be. I think that we've talked a lot about themes with this album. And, you know, those two tracks, you know, have similar themes to them. No self-control, lead a normal life, you know, being kind of on the outside looking in and finding ways to still connect. Like, I think that that's, you know, again, I'm kind of the eternal optimist about these things. And I always think that music like this, that kind of has this idea of being kind of a downer, kind of, you know, about these harder things in life. To me, even if it's not explicit, it's always about, okay, this exists, how do you overcome this now? And, you know, that's, I think, for me, that's as a, as a listener what I take away from this, where it's like, wow, that was a bummer. What am I going to do about this now? How do I lead a normal life? Not necessarily normal normal, but kind of how do I be true to myself and live the life that I want to live? Well, here's a question. Um, Tom was talking earlier on about how Gabriel found his sound sure. during this album. Would you say that uh, this was the moment that he found his lyrical stride, or do you, do you think it was more of a, a progression throughout all of the albums? I think you can look at it both ways, the progression, but I do think that this was a, a plateau, a destination that he reached lyrically. And then... Kind of like once you're at a certain level, you go, okay, this is now my new baseline. That if something isn't as good as what I just did, it's not going to go anywhere. I have to kind of make that next step. And some people may disagree about what that next step is. But at least I think internally as the artist, you go, oh, that's not, that's more like a second album lyric. I better redo this. I better rewrite this now. That's, I think that that's... Again, I, you know, I, I don't want to be armchair psychologist, but I am. And so, <laughs> so, but I think that, you know, until we have Peter here and we could ask him about these things, we do have to, we do put our own interpretations on Let's this. And I, yeah, we will. So, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, like I said earlier, this yeah. is to me his best pairing of lyrics and music. Yeah. So I think he was creating these songs with these words in mind or these words in mind mm -hmm. when he's creating the music. Like, yeah. I get the sense as a listener that this was, you know, he didn't just like come up with some words he was singing at a guide vocal right. and put it down. This is very well thought out and planned mm -hmm. um, as well, you know, along with the music would be. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
that's my, you know, that's why I can see that maybe I'm, I'm making connections that aren't there, but I see all these connections and these themes that you were talking about. Yeah. And he's very deliberate. Yeah. And um, I think his, his lyric, this was a, a high point in, as a lyricist for sure. him. Yeah, keep it short. Keep it, it says what it needs to say Absolutely. in three, five lines or whatever. And I think that also he had other songs he could have put on this album. He had, you know, uh, this song, Bully For You, I Go Swimming, an early version of We Do What We're Told that ended up on So. You know, even Chosaloza, something like that, that's more just a chanting thing, could have gone on this album. But he chose to put a track like Lead a Normal Life on there versus I Go Swimming. Right. And because it fits the mood of this more. And I have a question for people, you know, with, and this may be more of a bigger album question with this, but... You know, we, there's a lot of 5.1 versions that come out of classic albums and things from this era. Do you think of a, a mix that opened this album up a bit more would help this album? Or do you think that the way that this tra- album was mixed in this more claustrophobic way really serves the music? That's an interesting way of looking at it. I certainly, um, from my perspective... Um, has there actually been a 5.1 mix made? You know, the, on for the videos, there are a couple 5.1, like for tracks like No Cell, uh, I Don't Remember, mm-hmm. uh, Games Without Frontiers. On the Play DVD, there's 5.1 mixes of these tracks, but not the album as a whole. I, I don't know. For, for me, um, I came from uh, a, a point of view where this was my entry into the world of both Peter Gabriel and, and Genesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a result... Um, you get the sense, and this this is something which I don't think is always applicable, but I think it's you, you tend to be aware of it. And it was George Martin who once said it when they were redoing the remixing the um, the Beatles tracks mm-hmm. for the Love mm-hmm. um, album. He said, "You, we we were acutely aware that we could be drawing moustaches on the Mona Lisa." <laughs> right. And uh, and I really do believe that there are some some albums where. It's a little bit like the George Lucas thing, where you just you could leave well enough alone. Right. Uh, and I genuinely do believe that this is one of those albums where, mm. although a five point one int- uh, mix would would be interesting, mm. it it wouldn't become definitive sure. for me. Right. And I don't look at five point one mixes as being replacements. I think that they're you know supplements. They're they're a different way to hear the music. Just like seeing something live is a different way of hearing a track that you love on album. So I think that for me, it's it's not a it doesn't replace anything, and I like that about it. I would love a five point one of this. Yeah. So um, especially if it was a crazy mix. Yeah, too. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it is claustrophobic, but also at times this feels very sparse. And I'm yeah. wondering if I'm missing something. And yeah. I know like Peter. And, you know, like other members of the band and Genesis themselves like to layer on very Mm -hmm. subtle, uh, you know, arrangements into their songs. So as a fan and and I don't have that close connection and that um, association that Simon has. So as a as a music fan, Mm -hmm. I always want to hear, you know, if there's something that could be brought out in another, you know, view of this album, um, I'd like to take that. But yeah, so I I would be all for it. I, I'm curious. I, I think we will be getting the vinyl set okay. of this, so we'll start there. See right. how that goes. <laughs> and exactly. uh, yeah, yeah, I agree with Stacey. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, I would love to hear the five point one point one version of it because again, you can listen, you can hear different things. Yeah, maybe there's something there. Will make me grab because I'm gonna be honest with you. I I really have no connect. The, the first time mm-hmm. I have a connection with this song is Biko. 
Okay. It's, it's not until the end of the album yeah. where I actually feel. Oh, I know. Simon is in pain. You heretics. He's calling the lawyers now. Heretics. <laughs> but I, now, look, I'm not saying it's no. the first time I like the album, or yeah, it's not the exactly. first time I am enjoying it. It's I'm saying the first time I feel immersed in it, and I right. feel a connection like I do when I listen to Genesis or maybe some of the other sure. albums related to that world. Right. Biko is the first time I feel, oh, wow, I'm not a part of the song. That's silly. But, like, I don't know. There, there's more. It gets I, inside you. Yeah, I, I, I can, re- I don't know. I can't really relate to it, but I can, you know, I, I feel it. Right. And um, I'm maybe with a 5.1 mix or some, you know, a little rearranging or mm-hmm. bringing out some things, mm-hmm. making it bigger and more expansive, maybe that would draw me in a little bit more like Biko does already. Sure. Okay. I'm sorry, Simon. <laughs> I was just curious about people's thoughts about that, so I appreciate, you know. I, I mean, I'm not against a five-point-one oh, mix, but as I said, sort of for, for me, yeah. uh, it it's a family snapshot. Yes, <laughs> it gives you what you want from it. So excellent. We'll now move on to the final track on the album, Bigo. for me is the classic version of a track that I like the 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 recorded version of it but I think the live versions are so much more powerful uh, this is actually almost not angry enough for me yeah especially live with the drum the drums are some different live right and the staging of it especially at the end of the track you know as it tends to be each instrumentalist leaves the stage one at a time leaving the drummer there yeah there's the audience participation it is also a track that i've seen live enough times where i've had conversations with some people where i'm like i don't know if i need to see Beto again you know it's okay i like again i it's one of those tracks that when i before the concert i'm like if they don't play Beto, i'm fine with that then if they play it i'm like oh i'm totally fine with them playing it how many times do you see Peter Gabriel in a year? <laughs> if all, I know. He has, a, he has um, a, a, a little um, uh, a little weekend spot in a wine exactly. bar. Exactly. You know, he comes That's over, it. private performance. Uh, well, it, when I saw him in 2003, the year after the Up Tour, when he was doing kind of a outdoor... Uh, Smaller, like amphitheater. Yeah, amphitheater uh, tour. Like, he, he had been ending with Come Talk to Me, which I love that track. Mm. And... The show that I saw was the first show that he brought that he broke out Biko as the final track and didn't play Come Talk to Me, and I was kind of like, oh, I'm like, I was hoping for Come Talk to Me, but I got Biko, which again in the moment is fine, 
But then afterwards, I was like, I would have rather. It's like getting afterglow and you're expecting supper's ready, isn't it, Mike? I have, I have a lot of these. I do. I have a lot of these musical items. I'm so sorry, everybody. No. But but anyway, I, I think the track is great. I think the, this three-verse short structure, I think the lyrics are fantastic in this yeah, track. Yeah, the lyrics are I think it's, you can you can blow out a candle, but you can't blow out a fire. Fant- it's a fantastic metaphor. Uh, I, I remember seeing an interview where he was talking about um, when he'd written Biko mm-hmm. and recorded it, he was not sure about whether or not he wanted to be this overtly political. Sure. Um, and he, I think he was having a conversation, and, and if anybody out there knows better and will correct me, you can correct us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe he was talking to Elvis Costello oh, okay. about whether or not he should release this. And he said, is this something which is close to your heart and he said yes it is he said then you release it mm-hmm. you put it out and I think really at the end of the day his involvement with human rights organization Amnesty International mm-hmm. uh, you know the he was instrumental I think in part in helping Nelson Mandela to be released um, and the, the downfall of apartheid in South mm-hmm. Africa I think it was this was a, a touchstone moment mm-hmm. um, for him as an artist and also as a um, as a you know a humanitarian, I guess. I agree a hundred percent. I think that the music can put a can put a spotlight on things, especially when it works. That that a lot of other media doesn't or can't. It's accessible. It's a you know five minute track. You can hear it and go, "What's that about?" And because the lyrics are relatively straightforward in this track, it's not oblique about what's going on. This is this is pretty straightforward. And I think that it really did start the focus throughout the 80s on the apartheid regime in, in South Africa to really help motivate the change, to make the mass of people aware of things that maybe they were kind of aware of, but not quite. And it also features... What is one of the other '80s iconic drum moments as well? Mm-hmm. When when you think of in the air, everybody knows that. that but that everybody will also be able to. You say Biko, everybody everybody will go boom boom ch, boom ch, boom boom. You know, it is a it's a melodic drum pattern, I yeah. suppose, as well, as, and serves as as more than just the backbone right. of the song. It serves as the context, and it's an interesting counterpoint from the start of this album with Intruder. And it just has a very nice, you know, conclusion for this, for this album. Yeah. I never thought about it, rounding it out rhythmically. Yeah. It kind of gives it this, this circular thing that it, it, again, it comes back to where it started almost. And it's, it worked for me. And I just came up with that now. So it's not something yeah. I've, I've deeply thought about. But, you know, but it certainly is, you know, looking for, for connections in this music. I think that that's something that is an intentional placement of tracks. You know, where else could Beto go on this album? Yeah, that's true. You know, where else could Intruder go on this album? It ends with that kind of uplifting, like no matter how bad things get, mm-hmm. it's going to get better. Like right. I said, you can't blow out a fire you know a lot of candle but you can't blow out a fire it's like things are going to get better and it it does kind of tie the whole album together and you might Mm -hmm. consider this a little bit of a concept album because you have biko who someone who's been in prison Mm -hmm. so you know kind of that ties to maybe lead a normal life or Mm -hmm. he's not one of us Mm -hmm. and you know games without frontiers the different political aspects of it so it kind of like is a good 
ending to this album to kind of close out all the feelings that have gone throughout this. Yeah, he's taking all these 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 themes and now relating it to something very tangible right. and wild. very rel- like real. Um, right, bring the abstract to the concrete. Absolutely, yeah. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> I think when that movie Cry Freedom came out, this track wasn't used in the movie, but there was a video that was shown on MTV that was yes. tied in with this that I think Gabriel performed this in a straitjacket. Um, and I just remember seeing that and, and again, I was, you know, 15, 16 at the time, probably. And being like, this, this is important, Mm. you know, and, and not kind of faux important of, oh, this is a great track, but it it was just like, this is about life and death for this individual that you can then apply to everything else in that situation. And it's become kind of, you know the rallying cry for human rights. It's like an anthem. Exactly. And that's why I feel bad agreeing with you. Like sometimes I can do without hearing it because like, because of the subject matter, I don't want to say anything bad about it because then it makes me look like a horrible person. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think saying that you'd rather hear a different. It's like, yeah. Why do you hate? Yeah. But also I think it's that, that idea that I hear other Gabriel and other musicians talk about that when you play something live, yeah, there's a good chance that for half the audience, they've heard it 18,000 times before, but there is that part of the crowd that it's their first time hearing that track in that context in live. And that's where I've kind of said like, yeah, I've heard this enough that yeah, I could kind of pass on it, but I enjoyed it in the moment. But for some people, it is their first time to really hear Gabriel. Well, and it is a chance for Gabriel to directly connect with his audience you yes. know with the oh 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 right. and the you know the the lights mm-hmm. i mean apart from lay your hands on me mm-hmm. there was there hasn't really been another song that he's done live i can think of where it's everybody is a part of that song <laughs> yes. everybody is a part of you know the feeling and right. you know what's going on so i think that's why he chooses to do it live it's another opportunity oh, yeah. for him to remind people yeah. that we still need to pay attention yeah. to this and as and as he says at yeah. the end of it the rest is up to you absolutely right. this you know he he has to play this song has to be played to every generation i think that's the way he sees it and uh you know i think it's beautiful it's very sad it's poignant um like i said earlier um Mm -hmm. you know i really do feel this song when i listen to it i think it's wonderful and i hope he plays it every concert i go to (laughs) opens Um, and closes it plays it a few times maybe in the middle so we saw Um, it orchestral also which was uh, different than we had seen before so yeah i think that it, it works out there were a couple alternate tracks that could have been on this album that were not. I mentioned them before. Uh, there's a track called Bully For You that was done with a guy named Tom Robinson, who's mm-hmm. much more well-known in England, I think, than over here. Could you, I mean, can I, yeah, I mean, correct us on Tom Robinson that? was uh, certainly during the 80s uh, um, a big star. He, um, he, was, he first came to prominence with a, a single called uh, uh, 2468 Motorway. Yes. And then... Uh, more seriously, we're in a song called "Glad to Be Gay" as okay. well, which is a kind of sort of like uh, uh, um, similar to to, to Biko uh, when it, it became as a clarion call for a, a lot of the uh, the gay rights movement because that song gave me the awareness of of the issues behind sure. what it was like to, to to be gay in a, a basically an anti-gay society, right. and I, I think that uh, he and uh, Gabriel shared a lot of common ground. Right. 
Right. So that that's a song that is called Bully for You that he played live a number of times in that era. I Go Swimming, which is on Plays Live, was recorded around this time. And I think on... The that beast. was about the sensory deprivation tank, I think. I don't know. He always talked about it being about the physical bodies. Like, it was, like that might be a very straightforward song for him. When but I maybe last, it was from the... Well, when I last yeah. heard about it, it, was, it I, I was told that it was um, okay. that it was about his experiences in the sensory deprivation tank. I can see that. That's swimming in a way in that. So, um, and there's But there's a good instrumental version of it that was the B-side of Red Rain that I have on a 12-inch single from that era. Called, I think they called it Gaga uh, at the time. Uh, there was a bootleg version of We Do What We're Told that ended up on So, that was, and it was done live at the time, that was much heavier. Um, and also there's, uh, that was on the B-side, there was something called Shosoloso, which I think was more of a chant that he might have gotten, it was kind of a Russian-sounding chant that was from... Uh, some found footage that he had and different things. So those are tracks, maybe not show solos that could have ended up on the album, but any one of these with more work could have either added on to this album or replaced something. Um, I'm glad it did not because I think that the tracks that were picked for this, as we said before, really all fit the album. Well, this brings me round to when we're talking about extra tracks, I suppose it would be remiss of us not to talk about the German language oh, yes. uh, albums that, uh, that he did. Cause I know that, um, there is a German language version of this entire album, yes. um, of which I think a couple are on the the twelve inch single. To I, um, so, yeah. I is it? I don't remember. I believe so. I think, and also there's a version of "Here Comes the Flood" that was on there, and you know it's yeah. Here comes the flood. Jetzt kommt die Flut. And uh, yeah, actually, no, that's the only German one that's on here. But this has the I don't remember the twelve inch single does have Shosaloza on it and uh, a remixed version of Biko. Probably not a dance version. No, I But I think it's, <laughs> it's a different version there. But uh, it's, you really, it's, Gabriel was very good about putting interesting things on B-sides, about having alternate versions, live versions, German versions. And I think that it allowed you as a fan to kind of and it's used to buy these things <laughs> yeah. I, I agree and uh, I know because I own the German version that the mix is actually slightly different there is, oh, okay. there is a different mix on that album in fact if I, I would I would go to say is it's actually even sparser <laughs> than, than the actual English language version wow. Germans liking something sparser like that. So surprising, right. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I would love, I, I do hope that Gabriel kind of reissues some of these albums again, whether it's with 5.1 mix, with the B sides, with the German versions out there. Because I remember back in the day seeing the German version on CD as an import that at the time was 30 bucks, $35. I know. At the time, I was like, I don't have thirty dollars. Now I'd be like, here, you know, take my lunch. I will, I will not eat for for a while to grab that. So, and they're probably out there on eBay somewhere. I haven't checked the prices, but I just think, you know, having a nice, cleaned up, you know, remastered cleanly version of this German stuff would be fantastic. I was showing this this album in, in preparation. <laughs> I got it out, and I was showing it to my young daughters, who's you know four and six, and she goes. His face is melting. I'm like, exactly. It's melt. How'd you know that's what they called it? They called it melt. From what I understand, I don't know if they actually did this, but they had taken Polaroids and shake it like a Polaroid picture. They had taken Polaroids of him and just kind of like, as it was developing, they they kind of like shook it. So it would get that kind of effect to it. 
don't know if that's true. That or not. I thought be. they just stuck them in a hot room. Yeah, that could be it too. Hair dryer or something. That's what I look yeah. like when the I air still... conditioner breaks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I still think it's probably one of the most iconic. Oh, that's no, I, that's my favorite of his of, of the four. You know, yeah, the, the first four, four albums where you know it was just Peter Gabriel. Yeah. That's my favorite that's cover. I think it's very interesting. We were talking a little bit off microphone about the fact that you'd noticed after only after a, a few years that he his face appears yes. on every, every single album. album cover. I mean, I can't think of any other member of Genesis that might have ever done that. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's uh, it's it's the and again, you know, I'll do this as the contrast between Peter and Phil is that Peter changes his look. He, yeah. he hides things in right. his album covers. Whereas Phil is very straightforward. There's no filter. No, no. It might be black and white. It might yeah. be a little bit of colors. It could be that he's, his eye is blue and side the rest profile. of it is black and white yeah, side profile. Yeah, like... It's very different. And it's it goes to two people who are very great friends with each other. Very great artists who just have a different perspective on how they present themselves. Well, yeah. And, you know, you think about Phil's music. He's very heart on the sleeve. Yes. Everything's on the outside. What you exactly. see is what you get. I'm yes. going to tell you how I... I feel and yes. what's going on in my real world where Gabriel he, he lives in his head yes. and so things Gabriel's aren't what they cerebral absolutely this, yeah. so of course the covers are going to reflect that right. and that's what's so great you got two great artists yes. putting out two you know very different things right. but you know there is some intersection yeah. there I think those four albums four, four opening albums were, were largely uh, a um, an, in, an intentional design, I think, by Gabriel, if I remember correctly, uh, reading about it, that he wanted it to be much like a, a, an issue of a magazine. Yes, yeah. And, uh, and he wanted um, the Peter Gabriel logo to be in one corner and just the, the, the cover change. Right. And I have to say, all four of those covers are excellent. Yes. I mean, I have to say, probably um, out of those those ones, I think... Melt or Peter Gabriel mm-hmm. Three is, is I still believe is the most iconic of the of the sure. lot, um, but each one of them has a statement. Wait, ooh, maybe out. that's another poll we could do on our website. Oh yes, well, of the or, first four covers yeah. of Gabriel Tell us albums. What your favorite <laughs> yeah, is. I think that's, that's a good, good one. Idea, yeah. yeah, excellent. Uh, so Tom, speaking of polls. Tom showed you his poll. All right, we had a lot of participation in this poll. My poll got pretty high up there. Uh, <laughs> as I said, the the top ranking song. Uh, oh, are you going to ask us first, or are you going to? Oh, that's right. Let's oh, go yes. around. Let's yeah. see. All right, go around the room and everyone say their favorite song. Okay, Stacey, go with um, you first. Well, of course, it's uh, Biko for me. Uh, much like Stacey, my favorite changes from time to time. I listen to right. this. I'm going to say, not one of us. Oh, excellent. For me, Family Snapshot. Okay. I will say I don't remember and go the mainstream route. And mine would probably be either... Commit! (laughs) (laughs) You can only vote for one. I'd probably have to go with Family Snapshot just because it goes through so many different styles and rhythms. Family Snapshot is the winner amongst the tabletop. That was a close second for me. So, yeah. And actually, family snap, 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 snap. <laughs> they took they took shots of snap, of snap. So was family snapshot, which got a, which about thirty percent of the vote. One third of the people like snapshot. That's like Trump level of votes. I can't I can't argue with that because it is an iconic track, really. 
Uh, coming in number two, not too far behind, uh, with 18% of the vote, was Games Without Frontier, so ah, the popular sure. tr- single. Uh, after that was a close, but Biko came in with about uh, 13%, okay. and right behind that with 12% was Intruder. Then you kind of go a little bit down below with I Don't Remember okay. with the 10%. Then you go all the way down to 3% of the vote was not one of us. Now I see the deep cuts. <laughs> and uh, finally, there were three which tied for 0% of the vote. Oh, which, yeah. which oh, got, your own special way. Yeah. <laughs> this is your own special way vote. Yes. Yeah. The uh, illegal alien vote, as it were. Yeah. It was a three-way tie for the goose egg with start and through the wire and lead a normal life. But I think I think there was someone on our boards who loved Lean a Normal Life. You just got to vote because it didn't get any votes. Right. So you got to vote if you want it to count. Exactly. That's a, that's a life lesson to learn. Yes. So <laughs> Al Gore learned that the hard way. That's a tough so, lesson right there. So. Yeah. So, well, that's good. And, and again, you know, this is this album is an embarrassment of riches. It's yeah. something that you know, looking at this lineup of tracks, where you know, looking at the ranking of these songs, you know, if. If not one of us that got whatever three percent, if that was on a different album, that would could be like a top one or two song on an right. album. So, yeah, it was hard to choose on this one. Yeah, I think I think for me personally, this album is his most prescient release. I think this album spelt out more not only for for what was to come with Peter Gabriel, mm-hmm. but what was to come <sighs> with music right. in total. That 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 drum sound, for example. Mm-hmm the the political awareness that was that was basically all through um the 80s and uh, and some of the the lyrical themes as well sort of like you know that sense of sort of like open paranoia and uh, the dislocation of the way that we are as people i think it's all in this album it just it's so much of what we we come to know today were being examined already at that point by gabriel both lyrically and melodically yeah, this this was the, these were the seeds that eventually you know sown you know into him becoming an icon. He was just a rock star, I think, mm-hmm. or you know uh, you know people knew who he was. There was this band Genesis, and then yeah. you know through this album, he truly became an icon, both in human mm-hmm. rights and, and in music. I think definitely. I think that this was the destination that he was going towards that maybe he didn't even know that he was right. going towards, and that again it was it was the first plateau. Of saying, okay, this is now where where my music is at, and I move forward from here. And you know, the fourth album could be a development from that. Some people like it more, some people like it less, whatever. And then so is a, a different plateau for him. So this has been great talking about this. Our first foray into solo album territory. I've looked forward to hearing about the rest of the solo album, the rest of the. Solo albums, however we move forward with solo albums, I'm sure we'll talk about some in groups and some individual ones also. So thank you for listening to this. This has been fantastic. And this is Mike Lord signing off. Ellie signing off. Uh, Simon saying good evening again. <laughs> um, I think at this point I'm just going to say good night. <laughs> this is Tom Roche saying good morning, good afternoon, and good night. There you go. Covering all the bases there. Yes, good night and good luck. We'll see you on the funny pages. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. 
Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes. to the light.